You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Joshua and Caleb, a four-part youth series. Now, Joshua and Caleb are noted for their honest report as spies entering into the Promised Land. We, too, should go up and take possession of the land, they say, for we can certainly do it. Sadly, the rest of the Ecclesia in the wilderness did not demonstrate similar enthusiasm. So what can we learn about these two wonderful characters that can help us on our walk towards God's kingdom? This series was presented on behalf of the Rugby Ecclesia Youth by Brother Mike Movasaki, and it's a four-part series, um, three studies with an exhortation. So I hope you enjoy these. Um, it was well received at uh, the rugby event. So until next time, may God bless you in your studies. going to be thinking this weekend about two uh, great men of faith uh, and as Noah reminded us in our thought last night uh, Caleb particularly as he was thinking about was a great man of faith Uh, Joshua is the same uh, and we're going to take some lessons for ourselves uh, from these two great men Uh, and what I also want us to try and do is get to know them so here are two people recorded for us in scripture uh, and they can become our friends and I want us to get to know Joshua and Caleb this weekend. Before we get into our study though I just want us to take a couple of uh, thoughts from that reading that we took a moment ago. So with your Bibles uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 and I just want you to think about Joshua and Caleb being there. So the Apostle Paul is reminding us about the wilderness journey He reminds us, and we're going to come back to this chapter in our exhortation tomorrow, but he reminds them what they did, that the children of Israel, they passed through the cloud, they ate and drank uh, the spiritual food and drink. And then verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Now of the the men and women who came out of Egypt, the the suggestion is there's about uh, over a million people over the age of 20 who left Egypt, and two of them over the age of 20, entered into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. And with most of them, nearly a million people, they think, died in the wilderness because God was not pleased with them. What did they do? They did the things that that the Apostle Paul tells us. They went after idols. We're going to think about that uh, a little bit later on in our session this morning. So with most of them, God was not well pleased. Verse 6, these things are for our example. Why? So that we don't do the same thing. So don't be like most of them. We've got to be like Joshua and Caleb. And then come down to verse 11. And you'll see it says uh, in verse 9, some of them did this. Verse 10, some of them did this. Verse 11, all of these things are for our example. And to them, uh, as they are written, and for the admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So don't be like the many. Don't be like the some. 
you've got to be like the few. You've got to be like Joshua and Caleb. If you want to leave Egypt to get to the promised land, do what they do. And we're on the same journey right here, right now. We are on the, the journey to the promised land. We're in the wilderness and the promised land is just over there. It's close by, isn't it? You know, we're seeing uh, world events uh, and, and the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ could be just around the corner. And in our session this evening, we are going to enter into the promised land. We're going to cross over the Jordan and we're going to go in and we're going to take Jericho and we're going to be in the kingdom. And so that's how close we are. And that's how relevant these things are for us uh, this weekend as, as we begin. Uh, some of you begin your discipleship, but all of us on our walk to the kingdom. So we're going to think then this morning about Joshua uh, being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're then going to think about Caleb, a man who was prepared to give everything to get into the kingdom, to give everything to be able to enter in to the promised land. And then, as I said, we're then going to cross over Jordan and we're going to enter in to the promised land. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to make a choice. And the choice is, and I'll tell you now, what are you going to do today? That's what Joshua says to the people. Joshua 24, we'll get there tomorrow. What are you going to do today? Not tomorrow. Tomorrow's too late. It's all about today. What are you going to do today? What choice will you make today as to who you are going to serve? The gods of the, the, the idols on the other side of the Jordan or Almighty God? And that's a choice that we have to make every day. Who is it that we want to serve? So that's our plan. Uh, and hopefully it will all go to plan. So, uh, first of all, uh, Joshua, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want us for a moment, just to have a little think about uh, a possible timeline of Joshua's life. We don't know very much about uh, the dates and, and the ages that he was. So some of this is me kind of fudging numbers a little bit uh, to create quite a cool picture. So don't take this as 100% red. I'll tell you what's true and I'll tell you what I've made up, but you'll see why I've made it up uh, in a moment. So what we know, from Joshua 24, and we'll look at it tomorrow, is that Joshua is 110 years old when he dies. We, we know that, Joshua 24, verse 29. That is fact. I want to suggest to you that he left Egypt at the age of 32. I've made that up, but bear with me for a second. It's not 100% made up. We know that they spied out the land, as Noah reminded us yesterday, two years after they left Egypt. So if Joshua is 32, he's 34 when he spies out the land. They then wander in the wilderness for 38 years. So he'd be 72 years old when he enters the promised land. We know, and we'll look at this in our second session, that Caleb was 85 years old when he received his blessing. So take away the maths, if, if my maths is correct, I've put Joshua as five years older, uh, six years older rather than, um, uh, than Caleb, would make him 79. You still with me? So what that means is, if that is true, I'm suggesting to you that Joshua spent 38 years wandering in the wilderness, and he spent 38 years in the land. Seven years uh, bat uh, taking uh, battles, and 31 years of rest. Now, as I said, some of that, I've slightly fudged the numbers, but it's quite a nice picture, isn't it? That God rewarded him and gave him 38 years in the land because he had to wander for 38 years in 
the wilderness. So just something to, 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 to think about there. And we'll come back to some of those dates uh, a little bit uh, later on. But what we're going to see this morning is he was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who led his people into the promised land and purged the land of sin and idolatry. And he gave his people rest. So before we get into the nitty gritty then of, of that, what, what is a type? So we talk about in scripture somewhat uh, a, a type. And, and there are two, I guess, sort of suggestions really uh, as to what they are. The, the first is where somebody in the scriptures behaves in a way that is like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll think about Joshua this morning being a type of Christ. There are others, of course, David, uh, Moses, uh, Joseph, uh, the list would go on and on and on. But also, you could have something that is like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've just put an example, because we'll come to it uh, in one of our sessions, uh, I think it's later on today. Uh, the, The Passover is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a type of that Passover lamb. He is a type of the blood that was put uh, around the door uh, uh, of that house. And so an object or an event that is representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to think this morning about Joshua being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, when we think about his name, his name means... Yahshua, Yah saves. We think about the name of the Lord Jesus. His name is Jesus. It means Yah saves. So their names are the equivalent in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And so what we're going to see this morning is that Joshua was chosen very early on in the ministry, uh, not in the ministry, sorry, in the wilderness journey for a very important job. And we're going to see uh, in our second session that he's from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, I'm not going to turn up any of these passages. I am making my slides available. Uh, they're also being recorded. So if you, uh, if you don't get all of this, then, then feel free to um, uh, grab those off me or, or, or ask one of the leaders and you can have them. But what I just want to demonstrate here is that Joshua's lineage put him in a very important position within the camp of Israel. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. <clears throat> now, we know, or we may know, that God chose Ephraim to replace some of the tribes that didn't receive a blessing. So when Jacob blesses his sons, he blesses both the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, and gives them a double blessing because uh, of Joseph's position within the household of Jacob. And so Joshua then comes from the tribe of Ephraim. And his grandfather was the head of the tribe of Ephraim. We can see that from Numbers chapter 2. We we won't turn that up now. So it's not a random thing that Joshua has chosen to succeed Moses, uh, to take the children of Israel into the promised land. He was chosen because of his lineage. He was chosen because he was of good stock. He was the right man for the job. Uh, And as we said, his grandfather uh, was the the head of the tribe of, um, of Ephraim. So just bear that in mind. It's not random that God went out of that one. God chose him because of who he was and because of his lineage and because his, his grandfather was the head of the tribe of Ephraim. So the first time that we come across uh, Joshua in scripture is in Exodus chapter 17. So just turn there with me to Exodus 17. So we're not that long in 
to the wilderness journey. I think it's probably just uh, a month or two, uh, at the absolute most. So we have chapter 14, they cross over the, the, the Red Sea. Chapter 15, we have the Song of Moses. Chapter 16, we have the giving of the manna. And then we come to chapter 17. At the beginning of the chapter, they want water, and the water comes out the rock. Uh, and, and we read that in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that that was uh, a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to go in at verse 8. Because this is the first time that we're introduced to Joshua in Scripture. And what we have then is Amalek coming to fight against the children of Israel. So in the wilderness, and Amalek has come. Joshua 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand upon the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So it could seem random. Uh, Joshua, you go. No, no, no. Joshua was chosen because of his position within the camp of Israel, because his grandfather was the head of the tribe of Ephraim. And Joshua is singled out because he's the right man for the job. And what's he asked to do? He's asked to go and fight against Amalek. <clears throat> Keep a marker in Exodus uh, 17 and come with me to Deuteronomy 25. I am going to ask you some questions just to make sure you're awake. Does anybody know? It's an easy question. The answer's on screen. Does anybody know what Amalek represents in Scripture? Amalek represents sin. Okay? And let's have a look at uh, Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto you by the way when you came forth out of Egypt, how he met you by the way and smote the hindermost of you, even all that were feeble behind you, when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. Wherefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the day, sorry, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, for an to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget it. So what Amalek did is they attacked those that were at the back, those that were weak, uh, those that were weary. And if you think about your own discipleship, when are you most likely to sin? Of course, we sin every day, but when are you most likely to sin? It's when you're dragging back, when the word of God is not at the forefront of your mind, when you're feeling a bit weary, when you've not been going to youth weekends, when the chips are a bit down, that's when the temptations start to come in. And that's what Amalek was like. They attacked those that were weak, those that were weary, those that had lost themselves in the way. And when they come to, into the kingdom, when they come to the promised land, they had to get rid of Amalek completely. And so Amalek, I would suggest to you, represents sin. And what Joshua is asked to do, come back to Deuteronomy 17, What's he asked to do? He's asked to go and fight sin. Go and fight Amalek. That's your job, Joshua. I want you to go. You are the right man for the job. You represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to go and fight sin. And we know that the Lord Jesus fought sin for us. What's he got to do? Verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out a remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Amalek is going to disappear. Sin is going to disappear. Who makes Amalek disappear? Joshua. 
Who makes sin disappear? The Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful picture we have here uh, of the fight against sin. But the other thing is, it's not going to happen straight away, is it? Verse 16, for he said, because the Lord hath sworn that you will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We are always going to fight sin until the return of the Lord Jesus. Yes, Joshua discomforted Amalek, as we'll see in just a moment. But sin still remains until we enter the promised land for the final time. And sin is destroyed uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus. So let's just go to uh, verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he put his hands down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereupon, and Ur and Aaron stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were, were steady until the going down of the sun. So we've got three men. We've got Aaron, we've got Moses, and we've got Hur. What was Aaron's job in the camp of Israel? What was, what was Aaron asked to do? He was the priest. Moses was a prophet. Now, her came from the tribe of Judah. What was special about the tribe of Judah? What, who, uh, what descended from the tribe of Judah? It begins with K. The king. So we have a prophet, we have a priest, and we have somebody from the tribe, the kingly tribe. Prophet, priest, and king. Who's a prophet, priest, and king? Lord Jesus Christ. What's Moses doing with his hands? He's holding them out like this, okay? Which remember that. So he's got his hands out. Just bear that picture in mind for a moment. And we'll come back to that in just a second. Thinking about the Lord Jesus, for what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and condemned sin in the flesh so the lord jesus christ as he hung upon the cross destroyed sin once and for all and that's what we have a picture of uh, as joshua goes and destroys amalek so as we said his hands were heavy and they were heavy unto the going down of the sun i'll just read you a verse you don't need to turn there but i'll just read to you from isaiah 35 because this is what Jesus is going to do for us when he returns. So this is Isaiah 35 and verse 3. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, a God with recompense. He will come and save you. Then will the eyes of the, the blind be opened and the, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to keep our hands up. He gives strength to our knees, and he does that through what he has done for us, because he takes our burden of sin and carries that for us. And he does that, we saw back in um, Exodus 17, that his hands were up until the going down of the sun. What happened to the sun as the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross? Does anybody know? Well done. It went dark. We won't turn there now, but Luke 23, verse 44 and 45. 
it went down, uh, sorry, it went dark as the Lord Jesus Christ for three hours, I think it was, uh, if my memory serves me correct. For three hours, it is. I'm getting a nod from the front row. For three hours, it went dark as the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross. And, and Moses was there with his arms out until the going down of the sun, because this is a picture of sin being destroyed. And what's interesting, they've just left Egypt behind. They've just left behind one of the most adulterous nations that the world has ever seen. They had a God for absolutely everything. And the chief God was called Ra. What was he? Well, he's the sun God. And God is saying, do you know what? I'm way more powerful than him. I'm way better than any God of Egypt, because they're not even real, are they? I am the, the, the true and living God, and I control the day and at the night. And, and Ra, well, he does nothing, really, because our God is supreme. So a wonderful picture here of sin being destroyed. And I just want us uh, to notice one other thing. Uh, is it on this slide? Or is it next slide? Um, I, I, let me have a little look. I've just... Uh, where is it? Uh, da, 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 da. I've lost the verse now. Um, where does it say? Uh, verse 13. So, and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. I'm just going to go back a slide for a second because I'm going to ask you to do something with your phones in just a moment. So every single word in scripture is important. And Joshua, we are told, discomforts Amalek with the edge of the sword. And that is massively important. Every word is important. But I want you to think about that just for a moment. So get your phone out for me. I'm giving you permission to get your phones out. And I want you to tell me, and it's, it's true in both the Hebrew and in the English, because I've checked it. But where do we first read of a sword in Scripture? Now, you may know the answer without getting your phone out. But if you're not sure, grab your phone. If you've got an online Bible or concordance, have a look. And who can tell me the first time that we read about a sword? In Yes, Shoshana. Pardon? It is in Eden, correct. It's, it's, it's uh, Genesis chapter 3. Good job. Someone tell me, in the Old Testament, the last time we read about a sword. Who can tell me? Last time. It's quite near the end of the Old Testament. I'll give you a clue. Zechariah 13. So, Genesis chapter 3, a bookend. Zechariah chapter 13, the other bookend. Okay? Somewhere in the middle, Joshua fighting with Amalek, yeah? discomforting them with the edge of the sword. So come with me to Genesis chapter 3. Because this is cool. So Genesis chapter 3, uh, as Shoshana said, is the, uh, the, the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve have sinned. They've eaten from the tree. They've, cut, they've hidden. They've put aprons on. God says No. It's not good enough. That's not what I want. That's not how sin is covered. Sin is covered through the death of an animal. So he makes them a coat of skin. And then verse 22, the Lord says, and the Lord God said, Behold, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. 
So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So the inclination, or the suggestion is that until this point, Adam and Eve had been eating from the tree of life, because there's only one tree they couldn't eat of, and so they'd eaten from the tree of life, and it sustained them. And now, God says they've become like us. They know good and evil. They can't eat from the tree anymore. And he bars them from the garden, and he places a flaming sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden and protects the way to the tree of life. So that's, the, that's another bookend. So Genesis chapter 3, the tree of life is barred. Revelation, I think it's 22, we are told that in the kingdom we will eat again of the tree of life. So something has got to happen to take away the sword so that we can eat again of the tree of life. Does that make sense? Give me a nod. Okay. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 13. As it says on screen, in our sinful state, we are not able to enter into the Garden of Eden and eat of the tree of life. And to stop that from happening, there's a sword that was protecting the way. So, Zechariah chapter 13, this is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. And it's fairly obvious that it is, because it says, verse 6 of Zechariah chapter 13, I can hear some pages turning, so I'll wait for just a sec. Zechariah chapter 13, one shall say unto him, and you may say, well, who's, who's the him? Well, it says the words, what are these wounds in thy hands? Now we know, don't we, what happened to the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross. He had a nail that went through his hands and through his feet. And in the kingdom, so people are going to say to him, what, what are these wounds in your hands? And we think about um, Thomas who wanted to see the hole. I'm not going to believe that the Lord Jesus has been risen until I can see the hole in his hands. So we know that the Lord Jesus had his hands pierced. Then he shall answer and say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, we don't have time to look at this in great detail. There's uh, some, some lovely points here about the point at which the Lord Jesus felt he was wounded, and it was the point at which Judas um, betrayed him. And that was the first time, in a sense, that his hands were pierced, but they were pierced as he hung upon the cross. And then it says, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon my little ones. And that verse is quoted in Matthew 26 and verse 31. That the shepherd was pierced, and the sheep were scattered. Matthew 26, verse 31. Just to prove the point again, that this is messianic and talking about the Lord Jesus. So how were the hands of the Lord Jesus pierced? Well, of course, they were pierced as he hung upon the cross. But have a look again what it says in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ had his hands pierced because he had to pass through the sword in order to make open the way to the tree of life. Does that make sense? Is that quite cool? So it's awesome, isn't it? So a tiny detail. Joshua discomforted Amalek with the edge of the sword. Well, of course he did. 
He's having a battle. What else would he have used? He hasn't got a gun. So that's true, isn't it? But also, there's a beautiful picture here about the way that sin is going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed by a sword because the Lord Jesus Christ passed through the sword. He was pierced in his hands and in his feet so that we can have access to eternal life through his work. We can become God's people and we can be part of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac and to Jacob. So every detail in scripture is important. Come back with me to Exodus because our time is is running away with us. Come back with me to Exodus uh, chapter 17. And so what Moses then does in verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh Nissi. He called it the Lord is my banner. And why did he do that? He did it as a remembrance for them that we always have to fight against sin. And again, I'll just read you a verse just because of time. I'll just read to you a verse uh, where this same word Nissi is used. It's in, used in Isaiah. And again, it's talking to us about the Lord Jesus. It is Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 5, I think. That's not the right verse. Uh, it's verse 11, I think. Hang on, sorry. I've written the wrong verse down there. It's actually verse 12, sorry. So my apologies, the, the wrong verse there on the screen. So Isaiah 11, verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left. And then verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign, same word Nissi, same word for banner, for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the world. An ensign for all nations. All nations are part of the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And we can enter into those promises through the work of the Lord Jesus, who um, came and died for us. I want us to look now at another example. So come with me. To Exodus chapter 24. Because as we said, Joshua is chosen for a very particular role. He's the right-hand man of Moses throughout the wilderness journey. And in Exodus 24 and at verse 13, he's chosen by God again and, and, and Moses to go up the mount of God. So he goes up the mount of Horeb with Moses. Well, he, sorry, he goes rather to the base, I should say, of the Mount of Horeb, and then Moses then goes up the mountain. And what he receives when he goes up the mountain is the law and the blueprint for the tabernacle, and that's chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, etc. We then come to chapter 32, where we have the incident of the golden calf. Now, we're not going to look at that in any detail, but this was picked up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it was one of those things that caused the nation to fall, where most of them, God was not well pleased, and Aaron, of all people, makes them this golden calf. God's delaying, you know, you've brought us out of Egypt, uh, where there are lots of gods, 
Our Moses disappeared. We need a God. We need something that we can fashion, that we can see, that, we, that is real for us. There's a discourse then between God and, uh, and Moses. Uh, God says to Moses in verse 10 that he's, he's angry with his people because of what they have done. He wants to start again with Moses. We can see that in, in verse 10. Uh, and Moses says, no, God, they're your people. You brought them out. Don't be angry with them. I will go uh, and intercede. And, and you will turn, verse 13, from your wrath. And then verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mount with the two tables of the testimony in his hands. They were written on both sides, one on the other side, and, the, and, and the, the, uh, one on the one side and the other on the other side they were written. And the tables were the work of God and the writings and the table of God graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing I do hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh to the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and break them beneath the mount. He grinds it to powder and makes them drink it in verse 20. And then he says to Aaron, what, what happened? What, what, what are you going on about? Have you been away 40 days? What are you doing? Why have you made a golden calf? Oh, well, you know, the people wanted it and they bullied me into it and I made it and it sort of came out the fire. And then, verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked, it doesn't mean literally naked, it means they'd cast everything off, uh, they, they'd let go uh, of their morals. Moses stood, verse uh, 26, at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? <clears throat> I want you remember that phrase. We're going to come back to that in our uh, session tomorrow. Uh, Joshua's right there next to him and he hears those words. Who's on the Lord's side? Make a choice right now. Whose side are you on? God's side or the side of the golden calf? And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And I think that's one of the reasons to why the tribe of Levi was chosen to be God's uh, priesthood because they realized that they were on the side of Almighty God. So, as we said, Joshua turns down, he hears all of these words. He hears about idolatry. Remember that, we're going to come back to that tomorrow. And he sees the reaction of the Levites as this young man standing beside Moses. Who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites made the choice that they were on God's side. And he saw the danger of idol worship. And we'll come back to that again in our session tomorrow. Just give you a question to ponder for a moment. You're probably never going to build a golden calf. You're probably never going to have an image of Ra, the sun god, in your house. But what's the name of your golden calf? What does your golden calf look like? What is potentially getting in the way of you being on the Lord's side? Just think about it. Could be a footballer. Could be a PlayStation. Could be, I don't know, dare I say it, could be alcohol. Could be lots of things. It could be an idol that's stopping you, that, that you're worshipping, that's getting in the way of you serving Almighty God, that causes you to cast off your restraint and to potentially do things that you wouldn't normally do. Just think about it. I'll check it out there. What's the name 
of your golden calf. Let's go over to chapter 33, because what Moses has to do is he has to react to this incident. He has to do something to get rid of idolatry that's in the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 33, in verse 7, what Moses does is he takes the tabernacle, not the literal tabernacle, because that's not built just as yet. So the suggestion is it's actually Moses' own tent where... Um, that, was, that had been at the center of, of, of the camp of Israel, and he pitches it without the camp. I want you to imagine in your mind for a moment the camp of Israel. And what would be in the middle normally is the, the, the tabernacle, right in the middle, there. And, and all the other nation, all the other tribes were camped around the tabernacle. So imagine that in your minds. And what Moses does is he takes this tabernacle, not the, the, the real one because that's not built yet, but he takes it and he puts it outside the camp of Israel. And what he's saying is you can't be saved by the things that are going on around you. You need to take yourself out of that situation and put yourself outside the camp of Israel. And then the, the middle of verse 7, And it came to pass, everyone which sought the, the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of congregation, which was without the camp. So if the camp represents the law, what we're saying is in order to be saved, you have to take yourself outside of the law and that's the only way that the nation could be saved and it came to pass when Moses went out of the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at the tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle and it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. The cloud that represented the, the, um, the presence of Almighty God among the nation of Israel at that time. It goes and it comes and sits on Moses' tent that is outside of the camp of Israel. And we know, don't we, that the door of the tabernacle represents the Lord Jesus Christ. The way into salvation is through the Lord Jesus. And what we're saying is, is that the only way now to be saved was to go and look at that tabernacle that was outside the camp of Israel. And we see in verse 11 that the Lord spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks unto his friend. And then have a look at uh, verse 11. And he turned again unto the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Now, Every word that scripture tells us is important, but everything that it doesn't tell us is also important. It never tells us that Joshua returned to the camp of Israel. Now, did Joshua return? Yeah, of course he did, 100%. I don't know when, but he did. We, we know that for a fact. But scripture never tells us. Why doesn't it tell us? Because Joshua represents the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only way that we can be saved is by coming out of our day-to-day -day life, out of this, the curse of sin, lifting ourselves up and putting ourselves at the door of the tabernacle that speaks to us of the Lord Jesus. And so in type, Joshua remains without the camp. And we read in Hebrews chapter, to, uh, chapter 13 that we have to go unto the Lord Jesus Christ without the camp, bearing his reproach, because it's the only way for us to be saved. I think it's verse 12 uh, of Hebrews chapter 13. We have to go unto him, and we have to, uh, to speak with God uh, outside 
of the camp. And so we see that they speak, God and Moses speak face to face. Now, what do they speak about? Well, I suggest to you that they speak about the words from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. What's it all about? It's all about Moses understanding the name of God and seeing his grace and his glory. And I've got the verses up on screen. And if you're fast enough, you'll be able to write them down. So it's all about grace and glory. And we think about the Lord Jesus. It, it, John chapter 1, uh, verse 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So they were talking about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were talking about the name of God that shows us the way by which we can be saved. And in verse 13, Moses says, Now therefore I pray you, if I found grace in thy sight, show me thy way. I think it's John 1, I've not put the, sorry, John 14, I think it is. I've not put the verse on screen, my apologies. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If someone could just get their phone out, uh, see uh, where that verse is and shout it out just so uh, people who are taking notes can write down. I think it's John 14, but um, I, I may be wrong with that. So what then happens? Well, God then says, well, I will make my glory pass before you. Verse 19, I will show you my goodness. I will tell you what my name is. And what's Moses got to do? Well, it's there in verse 20. And he said, God said, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you will stand upon a rock. Now, the revised version has, you will stand upon the rock. What did they drink of? They drank of a spiritual rock that was the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that rock I'm suggesting he stood on, but I think a rock represents the Lord Jesus. And we think about the words of Peter when, when, when uh, Jesus says, well, who, who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's Matthew 16. Upon that rock, I will build my ecclesia. Moses, you need to stand upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to understand the way that you can be saved, if you want to understand my grace and my glory, then you need to stand upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we can have fellowship with, uh, with the Lord God. And I'm suggesting to you that Moses was there talking to God and Joshua is right there next to him hearing these words. And he's understanding and going, that's my job. I've got to take the children of Israel through the wilderness. I've just killed Amalek. I've just seen how we need to destroy idolatry. And it's my job to take them into the promised land. And that's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way. I've got to put my trust in him. And we're just now coming uh, to a close. So it's Joshua's job then that he would allow the children of Israel to enter into the promised land. Come with me finally. We won't go to the Hebrews passage now. We'll go to that one at the beginning of our second session. But just come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Because Joshua's job, his final job, if you like, was to get the children of Israel to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 3. It's nice about to hear pages still turning, that you're still there with me. So... Uh, it's good to hear that. So this is God talking to Moses, and he says to him in verse 28, 
But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people and he shall, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. So we abode in the valley over against Beth Peor. Your, your final job, Moses, is to encourage and to strengthen Joshua, who is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the one who will lead the people into the promised land. The Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the one, and we're going to think about it in our session this evening, he is the one who is leading us to our rest. Now, I did tell you I'd finish. Can we go to Hebrews 4? Give me a nod if you want us to go to Hebrews 4, or do you want me to wait till later? I'm getting a couple of nods. Let's go to Hebrews 4. Just finally, because this just ties it up for us. So Hebrews chapter 4. And as we said, it's all about making a choice. The children of Israel made a bad choice. And as a result, they had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And you'll see in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, it's all about doing it today. Let's have a look. Chapter 13, exhort one another why it is called today. Verse 15, today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Thinking about the children of Israel as they harden their hearts in the wilderness. And then uh, come down to verse six, uh, 7 sorry, of chapter 4. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And then verse 8. For as Jesus, or Joshua, as it says um, in, in the RV, because they're the, the, the same word, Hebrew and Greek, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. For he that is entered into this rest, he hath also ceased from his own work, as God did from him, his. Let us labour therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So Joshua gave them a taster. His 38 years, if it was 38 years, was a taster of what is to come. The true Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who is going to lead not just the children of Israel, but every single one of us in this room has the opportunity to be led by the Lord Jesus Christ into the true rest that would come. The, 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 the kingdom of God when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. So Joshua led his people into the promised land. He purged the land of sin and idolatry and he gave his people rest. And the Lord Jesus Christ is doing the same thing for you and for me. Thank you very much. Our second session, and we're going to be thinking about Caleb this time. So we've thought about Joshua, who was a type of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. We've seen uh, his victory uh, over sin where, when he went to fight Amalek. Uh, and we thought about the idols that we might have in our lives that we might need to overcome. And what we're going to think about now is uh, going out and fighting 
our giants and doing that in God's strength. And we're going to do that by thinking about uh, this man, Caleb. And as we said, he was one of the two who was over the age of 20 when they left the promised land, when they left Egypt and went to the promised land. And what's interesting, just to note at the start, is that every time God refers to Joshua and Caleb, he always puts Caleb first. He, God always says Caleb and Joshua. Anytime Moses talks about them, he puts Joshua first. And I think we thought about the reason for that, because he was the head of the tribe of Ephraim. But I think the reason that Caleb comes first is because, as I suggested earlier on, I think he's older than Joshua, and I think he was uh, a mentor, and I think he was the one who gave Joshua strength in his early life to overcome and to be prepared to enter into the promised land. So he's not chosen to be the leader, but in God's eyes, he plays a very important role. Uh, and what we're going to see is the faith of this remarkable man. And I was a little bit nervous last night when Noah started his thought. He said, I'm going to talk about Caleb. I said, oh, crikey, I'm going to have to go home and change my talk. But what he said was brilliant. Because he talked about the faith of Caleb. I'm going to think about that today. But also the faith of Abraham. And what we're going to see is that Caleb inherits the land that was promised to Abraham. So that what he said yesterday was a brilliant starter for our thoughts today. So, Caleb, his name means a dog. Uh, I was going to call this uh, talk a dog that was prepared, um, but it got vetoed by Brother Matthew, so we went for a Gentile uh, that was prepared. So just think about, we won't turn there now, but you may remember, recorded in Matthew chapter 15, a lady, a woman, a, a Gentile woman, comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I want to be part. Uh, and Jesus, uh, Jesus says, well, you, you can't be part because um, you're a Gentile. You're from Syrophoenicia. And she says, even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. Even the Gentiles can be part of something greater. And she recognized that the Gentiles could be part of the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And here is a man, and we're going to see that he was a Gentile, uh, and that comes out first and foremost in his name, because it, it means a dog, and he was prepared. Why do I call it that? Because most of the time, and I can't remember the exact number, most of the time we read about him, he is referred to as Caleb the son of Jephunneh. Now, I never refer to myself as Michael, the, the son of Robert. It just doesn't happen, does it? But God does that. God does that for a reason. Because here was a dog. Here is a Gentile. Here was somebody who had no right to be in the promises initially. But he was prepared to put his trust and his faith in Almighty God. So he was a dog who was prepared. He was prepared to wait we're going to think about the spies this morning. He had to wait 38 years to enter into the promised land. He was one of the two who gave the good report, as we'll see in just a moment. He could have gone in right there and then. They were on the edge of the promised land, and they could have gone in. But because of the ten, they swayed the people the wrong way, didn't they? And, and Caleb and Joshua had to wander for 38 years. So he was prepared to wait for his inheritance. We must be prepared to wait for the Lord Jesus to return. He was prepared to put his trust and faith in Almighty God. No matter how big the giant was, 
Caleb said, we can go in and we can destroy them because he put his trust and his faith in Almighty God. And he was prepared initially to stand alone because we'll see in a moment and one of the reasons I think he was older is that because it's Caleb who initially gives the report about them being able to go and take the land and then later on as we'll see Joshua then says the same things but it's Caleb he's the one on his own he comes back and he says do you know what we've got this we can go in and we can take it and he was prepared to stand alone and all of the other people the, the, the other 10 spies the whole nation was probably against him at that time and he was prepared to stand alone and so we too must be prepared to stand alone what we're also told uh, and i'll put the verses on screen we won't turn these ones up because we'll come to them a little bit later on but he was caleb the son of jephunneh a kenazite so we're told where he comes from and he comes uh, he's a kenazite so he comes from the line of kenaz Come back with me to Genesis 36. Keep a marker in numbers because we're going to go there in a moment. But just come back just to show that he was a Gentile, that he wasn't of the stock of Abraham. Well, he was kind of, but, and we'll see all that in a moment. But he wasn't from the line of Jacob. Let's put it that way. He wasn't initially one of the, from the, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis 36 and we can see in verse 1 that we have the descendants of Esau. So we know, don't we, Jacob had two sons, Esau, sorry, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob gives us the 12 tribes of Israel, and Esau then gives us Gentile or Arab nations. And that's a talk for, for another day. But just, just pick it up. Let's just have a look. Um, uh, verse 4, Adar bear to um, Esau, Eliphaz, and Bashamath, and Ruel, and Hinnabar, bear Joash, and Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau that were born in the land of Canaan. Uh, come over to um, verse 11. And the sons of um, Eliphaz were Teman, Oman, Zophar, Gatam, and Kenaz. So what we then have is Esau, who has a son called Eliphaz, who has a son called Kenaz. And what we then have that descends from them are the Gentile nations. And I've just, um, yeah, if you look then from verse 13 onwards, we have a list of all of the, the, the sons of Esau that became dukes. And then verse 19, these are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these are their dukes. And so what we then have coming from this line of Esau are the, the, the Gentile nations, the Edomite nations, the Arab nations that we can still see. Uh, in the land today. And so the, the bloodline of Caleb was Gentile. Can you see that? It's not coming from the line of Jacob. Give me a nod if that makes sense. Happy days. But what we do know, and we'll see this in a moment, in Numbers chapter 13, is that he's from the tribe of Judah. So there must have come a point, and we're not going to look at this today, there must have come a point when somebody in his bloodline married into the tribe of Judah, because he is from the tribe of Judah, and he is the chosen one from the tribe of Judah to go in and spy the land. Now, it's not unusual that the Gentiles were taken in by the tribe of Judah. Think about it. Tamar was a Gentile. She married Judah and, and came in to the family of Judah. We think about Rahab. She married into the, the family of Judah. I think it's Ruth chapter 4 that gives us the genealogy there. 
And we're going to think about Rahab uh, in our talk tonight, I think. Um, we think about Ruth. She was a Moabite. She was a Gentile. She marries into the tribe of Judah. And she's the great-great-grandmother, I think it is, of David, who was of the tribe of Judah. So it's not unusual for Judah to take in the Gentiles uh, and for them to become in. So I think I suggest to you that's why Caleb is from the tribe of Judah, because they were ones that took in uh, the Gentiles. Uh, and, uh, and we've seen that from that genealogy there in Genesis chapter 36. So the Kenizzites then, the, the line of Caleb, possessed the land that was promised to Abraham. And this is taken from Genesis 15. Uh, we won't turn it up. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites, etc., etc. And there's a bit of an irony here. So Abraham and his seed were promised a land that was possessed by Gentile people, including the Kenizzites. So the land of Israel originally belonged to uh, the Gentiles, including the Kenizzites. But Caleb, who was a Gentile of those lands, voluntarily accepted the hope of Israel and joined himself in faith to Israel so he could have a place in the land. Do you want me to say that again? Let me say that again. I've got it written down here. Abraham and his seed were promised a land possessed by Gentile people, including the Kenizzites. But Caleb, a Gentile of those lands, voluntarily accepted the hope of Israel, joined himself to the tribe of Judah in faith so that he could have a part of the land that was promised to Abraham. So he had to go over. He had to make that choice to step into the family of Abraham. And we have to make the same choice. We have to be part of Abraham's family. How do we do it? By baptism. If you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so here's a Gentile, a man who was prepared to put his complete trust and faith in almighty God. So you could have a part of the land that was promised to him. So we're going to think now then about his role in spying out the land. And Deuteronomy chapter 1, we won't turn it up, so make a note of it, but uh, just to, to save you flipping around, it was the people who wanted to go and spy out the land. Deuteronomy, 20, uh, Deuteronomy 1 verse 22, And ye came near unto me, this is Moses talking, and said, We will send men before us, and they will search us out the land, and bring us word again by what, we make, by what way we must go up and into what cities we shall come. So the people come to Moses and go, you know, we're a bit scared. We're going to go into the land. We know there's giants and there's lots of walls. We need to go and check it out first. You know, we're a bit nervous. We're not fully trusting what God says. So can you just send some guys out? They'll go and have a look for us. There was no need to do that. Because God had already spied out the land. Ezekiel 26, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 20 and verse 6, God talking through the prophet Ezekiel, in the day I lifted them up, mine hand unto them, to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. There was no need for them to go and check it out, because God had already done it. He'd already chosen it for them, because it was a land that flowed with milk and honey, but their faith wasn't strong enough. 
Their faith and their trust in God was not strong enough because they didn't know what they were going to go and see. We're going to think about this later on. God has gone before and prepared a way for us. Whatever tomorrow may bring, God has already been there. And God's already searched it out. And we have no need to fear when we have God on our side. But God listened to them. He says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll go and send the spies out. You've got a lack of faith, but we'll go and we'll send, uh, I'll send them out uh, and you will see that's just as I promised. But I think there's more to it than that. I think God is also saying to them, do you know what? I'm going to test and see if you're ready to enter the promised land. Are you really ready to enter into the rest that has been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob? And obviously they weren't, were they? The, the, the children of Israel were not ready to, to, to enter into the promised land. They had to wander for 38 years because they had to learn that God was with them. They had to learn to put their trust in God. And the only way that he could do that was by taking it away from them and saying, do you know what? You're not ready yet. It happened to Moses 40 years before. He wanted to go and he killed the Egyptian. He wanted to do it right there. And God says, no, you're not ready. You've got to go be a shepherd for 40 years because you're not ready to be the man to lead my people. And so God is preparing us. And sometimes we have to wander in the wilderness through tough times because we have to be ready. And God is preparing us to be ready. Let's have a look. Um, let's, we, we won't turn to Deuteronomy 1 now because we're going to go there in a second. But we will see that God, sorry, that Caleb relies on God's strength. And that will come out uh, in just a moment. So come with me to Numbers 13. Um, we started in verse 27. We're going to go back to uh, verse 17. But what we have in the opening verses is a list of the men who were chosen to go and spy the land. In verse 6, we can see of the tribe of Judah, we have Caleb, the son of of Jephunneh, a dog who was prepared. We then have in verse 8 of the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. And then just as a point that we should have touched on earlier, but I didn't, you can see in verse 16 that Moses changes Joshua's name from Hoshea, the son of Nun, to Jehoshua. So rather than just being the saviour, Hoshea, he changes it to Yahshua. To, to, to God saves. Uh, and Moses does that, again, to make that point that Joshua was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And they said, get you up by the way of the southward and go into the mountains and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell there, whether they be strong or weak, whether they be few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat and lean, whether there be wood that they're in. And be ye, not, be ye of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first great harvest. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob. And the men came to Hamath and descended by the south and came unto Hebron. So go check it out. Tell them what it's like. Is it good? Is it bad? Cities? They live in tents? What do they live in? Go check it out. Tell them what it's like. Can we go and do it? And they go and they see Rehob, the broad place, but they focus on just one city. They focus on the city of Hebron. Keep that in your mind. 
We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So what do they say in verse 27? They come back and they told him and said, We came into the land, whither thou sentest, and surely it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. It's exactly as you said, Moses. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. Look, got this huge bunch of grapes. How amazing is it? It's just as you said. It's awesome. Most of you probably thinking, happy days. I'm going to promised land tomorrow. What happens next? Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in this, the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land in the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea, and the coast of Jordan. We can't do it. It's way too scary. There's these really big people, and they've got lots of walls, and they're going to attack us, and they're going to eat us up for breakfast. Their human thinking overshadowed their faith. Twelve people went to spy out the land. All twelve saw exactly the same thing. All twelve witnessed the giants, the walls, the fruit, the land flowing with milk and honey. But both had very different perspectives. One, Joshua and Caleb, were strong in faith. The other ten were weak in faith. One saw an opportunity, Joshua and Caleb, saw an opportunity to go and take the land. The others saw barriers to their inheritance. We can't do it. And sometimes, as I said at the start, sometimes in our lives, we can be faced with giants, whatever that might be. They may seem too great for us to bear. And some of us might be going through a time now where something is happening in our life that just seems too great for us to bear. Have a look at um, uh, verse 33. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which were of the giants, and we saw in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. And we'll come back to think about the words of Caleb in just a moment. So it might be that sometimes we feel like a grasshopper against the challenge that is set before us. But we cannot allow our human thinking to overcome our faith. Because in God's strength, the giant is not as bad as it may first seem. And we're going to see that now as we come to think about Caleb. So what do they say? The people are strong. The cities are walled. And we saw the sons of Anak. They're really tall. They're going to eat us. And so can you see that it's your perception? It's how you look at a challenge through your own eyes or through the eyes of Almighty God. And Caleb looks at it through the eyes of God. Why is my clicker stopped working? <clears throat> there we go. So what does Caleb say? Let's have a look. Verse 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses. He doesn't just still the ten. He stills the people. Now I want you to imagine... A million people just making an absolute racket. Oh, we're really scared. We can't go in. We're listening. It's like, shh, just be quiet. He stills the people. And that word still, just, it means to keep silent. I won't turn these up. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. Keep silent before the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1. Hold your peace, the same word, at the presence of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent before the Lord. And what does, what does Caleb do? He stills the people. Just, just be quiet. Just, just shh. stop your noise. 
Just hold your peace. And he says, verse 30, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. One man against a million. Well, not quite a million, because Joshua thinks they can go in as well. And he says to them, uh, we are well able, but the man that went up with him said, we will not go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought an evil report of the land, which they'd searched out unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone and searched out is a land that eateth the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are the men of great stature, and we saw there the giants, the, the sons of Anak, and we were as grasshoppers in their sight. Do you really think that they saw giants eating other men? I don't think they did, did they? Let's be honest with that. You know, we've never seen that. They're making it up because they don't, they don't think they can go in because they're relying on God's strength. And Caleb's like, yeah, we can take it. Yeah, they were massive. We're like grasshoppers, but we can still go up because we are going in God's strength. And so he says, verse 30, let us go up at once. Uh, and that phrase, let us go up, is actually two Hebrew words together, the same Hebrew word. And it means arise, arise. We can go right now. Let's do it together, all of us. We can do this. We have got this because he's going to give us the land. I think he's bringing to mind the words of Jacob in um, Genesis 46. Feel free to turn up, but I will just read it to you. because It's just one verse. So this is Jacob talking um, as he goes down into the land of Egypt. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt. For I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into the Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. So the people should have known that God was going to give them the land because their forefathers, Jacob, had told them that they would give the land. That God had said, I will bring you into the land. And so Caleb's saying, we can do this. It's been prophesied that we can do this. We are able to go in to the land. He says, the end of verse 30, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. And again, that's two Hebrew words repeated. We are able, able. So arise, arise. Able, able is what he says. We can do this. We can go and take the land because God is with us. God is on our side. In God's strength, we can overcome our giants. And what the people saw, and what the ten spies saw, was a barrier to entry. What Caleb saw was a step of opportunity. And when we go through hardship in our lives, we can either cause it, or use it to cause us to stumble, or we can use it as an opportunity to increase our strength and our trust in God. And that's something that we have to make a choice ourselves as to who we put our trust in. Do we believe our own eyes and the things that we see in front of us? Or do we believe the eye of faith and our trust that we have in Almighty God? Chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said, Would God that we died in the land of Egypt. How quickly they'd forgotten how bad Egypt was, how quickly they'd forgotten that God had brought them out, that they'd been promised that they would be given a land. Or would God that we had died in the wilderness? 
And then verse 3, Wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our little children should be prey? Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? How sad that is, that they thought that Egypt was better. A life of sin is no way better than the promise that God has given us. And what do they do, verse 4? Let us make a captain that we may return unto Egypt. But then, come down uh, as we carry on reading. So verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their face before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched out the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the congregation. So do you see now? They're doing it together. So Joshua is drawn on Caleb's strength. And he said, you know what? I've got this with you. I'm in this with you, brother. Side by side, hand in hand, we'll talk to the people and we will tell them that we can go in. And what do they say? Uh, verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Nun, which were of them that searched the land, spake, verse 7, unto the children, uh, the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search out, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land that flows with milk and honey. And give it to us. Only rebel not ye against the Lord. Neither fear the people of this land. For they are bread for us. You might think they're eating you. But no, they're our bread. We can go and eat these guys for breakfast. They're nothing compared to the strength of God. Because it's not us who's doing it. It's God. He is the one who delights to bring us into this land. And give it to us. So rebel not against it. They are bread for us. Um, neither fear you the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defence is departed from them, and the Lord is among us. Fear them not. And what had God done? Just a few months, potentially, well, probably about six or so months before. He provided them with bread. He'd given them bread from heaven. And, and, and Caleb's saying, you know what? this is bread for us. This is like the bread that comes down from heaven. You can just go and pick it up. It's nothing to worry about. Because God is on our side. And then, verse 10, But all the congregation bade them with stones, and the glory appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children... Oh, sorry, I missed out a little bit. Their defences departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But the congregation bade stones to stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Their defence has gone, they're saying. There's nothing to worry about. What do they do? They go to pick up stones to throw them at Joshua and Caleb because they don't believe the words that they are saying. How sad that is that they put their trust in the wrong things because they saw barriers to entry rather than steps to opportunity. But then have a look, though, at verse 42. Because of what happens, verse 42, And Moses said, Where now do you trespass the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you. If we don't want God on our side, he won't be there. We've got to want God in our lives. We have to make a choice. Draw nigh to God, James 4, and God will draw nigh unto you. If you don't want God there, he won't be there. And so he says to them, don't go up, because God is not with you. But what Moses does in the interim, and we're not going to just have a look at your Bible as we go through this. We won't read it all now. 
but he pleads with God. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people provoke me? And how long will it be that they believe me for all the signs that I've showed among them? I'm going to destroy them. I've had enough of them because they don't put their trust in me. And Moses said, well, you can't do that because the Egyptians are here. And, and they'll say, you weren't able to bring them into the land. And he reminds God of his power and of his glory. And I think there's another lesson here for us. Sometimes in our lives, and we'll think about this again this evening, sometimes in our lives, we can remind God of what he has done for us. God, do you remember that time when you were with me and you did this, that, and the other? Do you remember your great power and your might, how you, you brought the Egyptians out of the land, or whatever it might be in, you, in your life? You can remind God what he's done. And God will hear and he will hearken. And what Moses does is he asks for forgiveness. Verse 19. And he says, the Lord is long-suffering and great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty. Pardon, therefore, verse 19, I beseech thee the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy. Yep, we have sinned. We've done this. I've done amiss. But remember, you are a great and a loving God. I've really messed up in my life. I haven't, by the way. Just, just, I've really messed up in my life, God. I remember that you were loving and a caring God. Please have mercy upon me and forgive my iniquity. And God will hear. And what does God do? Verse 20. The Lord said, I've pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. But there is a punishment for unbelief. And it comes out in verse 23. Surely... They shall not see the land which I swear, surely they will not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. So there is a, there is a condition, there is a, a consequence for the sin of the people. And ten times it says, God says, they, they've, they've tempted me ten times. And because of that, there is a, con a consequence. This is the last straw. They're going to die in the wilderness. They will not see the land, but... Verse 24, my servant Caleb, because he has another spirit in him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherein he went and his seed shall possess it. There's one man, well two men actually, and Joshua's not mentioned there. And as I said, God puts a massive emphasis on Caleb because I think in all of this, he was the leader and he was giving Joshua strength, which is why he was singled out. Because, of course, we know that Joshua went in too. And so there is a contrast, like a light in all of the darkness that's going on around. And God says, do you know what? I'm really glad for Caleb because he is the one. He has f followed me fully and he will be able to enter in to the promised land. But have a look at verse 25. Now the Ammonites, the Malachites, sorry, and the Canaanite dwell in the valley. Turn tomorrow, turn you and get you into the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. I said to you earlier on, it's about making a choice. You have to make a choice today because tomorrow it's too late. Because in, uh, at this point in, in Numbers 14, verse 25, you didn't make your choice today. So tomorrow you've got to turn around and you've got to go back the way you've come. 
38 years because you didn't put your trust in God and you listened to the 10 rather than to the two. And so today, what are you going to do today? And I'm going to show you a video tomorrow morning. What are you going to do today? That's the, the, the point of this video. It's about your life in jelly beans. It's quite a cool video, actually. You may have seen it before, but I'm going to share it with you tomorrow. Some of you may have seen it at UKYC if you were there. And the point is, what are you going to do today? Because tomorrow, you could be dead. Or you could be made to wander for 38 years. So today, what are you going to do? And so God's anger then is uh, against the people. But again, the contrast comes out in verse 30. Doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to, to make you dwell in therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. So again, they are told that they would go in. But again, there was a punishment for the people because they had to wander in the wilderness. The other spies are punished in verse 38, uh, sorry, verse 36. But again, the contrast comes out in verse 38. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which are of the men that went to spy out the land, still lived. So you can see again this contrast all the time. This is going to happen to these people, Joshua and Caleb will be saved. This is going to happen, this Joshua and Caleb will be saved because they put their trust in Almighty God. They wholly followed Yahweh their God. And come with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I told you a little while ago that we'd go there, so we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And six times in Scripture we are told that these men wholly followed Yahweh their God. And one of those is in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 36. And he's talking about the men that died. Verse 35, Surely shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. Save Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed Yahweh his God. And the word holy there means to be filled up to the very top, a bit like the glass we have on screen. There's no space in Joshua's life for anything else. He's full to the brim of God. It's all he cares about. It's his number one priority. Fill yourself up to the very brim with God. Trust, faith, everything. God's strength, God's time scale, God's way, God's promises. Fill yourself up to the very brim there's no, there's no space for anything else. Because when there's space for something else, you become a pessimist. Glass half empty. You know, we know, don't we? Glass half full, glass half empty. Well, it depends. Could be full of air. <laughs> you know? But we've got to be full to the very brim. There's no space in our lives for anything else. If we are full to the brim for God, then we'll have nothing to fear because God is on our side. And I've got the verses on screen where we read about him being uh, holy following the Lord his God. And he's told that his, he will tread upon the land. Won't turn there now, but that is a, a phrase that is linked to the promises that God gave to Abraham. Genesis chapter 13. Walk about the land, Abraham. Everything you tread upon will be yours. But he didn't get it, did he? Acts chapter 7 tells us he didn't get as much as to put his foot on. He had to go and buy a piece of land to bury his wife. But he believed in faith, as uh, Noah told us last night that he would receive the land. 
And Caleb has the same uh, faith as Abraham. Come with me now to Joshua chapter 14. So we're jumping ahead in history. Uh, the, the land has been taken. They've captured the cities. They've killed the ten kings in Joshua chapter 10. And we come to verse 6 of Joshua chapter 14. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, a dog who was prepared from a Gentile nation, said unto him, You know the thing that the Lord spake unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Do you notice that? His heart. He didn't just say it because he felt like it. He fully believed that he could enter the land. Forty years old I was. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. So the others, the ten, changed the heart of the people. It made their hearts melt. They weren't strong enough. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. I was full up to the brim. I still am for God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereupon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance and thy children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive. And he said, These forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto me, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and lo now, I am this day fourscore and five years old. I'm eighty-five years old. I've waited for forty-five years for this day to come. And yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war both to go out and to come in. And I'm pretty sure that he was still a pretty physical man. A pretty strong man at 85 years old. If I'm strong at 85, I'll be happy. But I think he's saying more than that. I think he's saying my faith in God is as strong now as it was back then. I've waited for 45 years for this moment, but I still believe that I'm going to be able to walk on the land. Verse 12, now therefore give me this mountain of the Lord spake in that day, for thou hardened, thou, sorry, thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be that the Lord will be with me, then I will be able to drive them out as the Lord spake. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, now obviously he's referred to in that way, isn't he? Hebron for an inheritance. Where did they check out? They checked out Hebron. Why? Because Caleb wanted it. What's cool about Hebron though? So keep going. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, unto this day. Why? Because he was wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron before was Kirjath Arba, which was the greatest man of the Anakims, and the land had rest from war. Why did? There's two reasons why Caleb chose Hebron. The first is because it was used to be called the land of Kirjath Arba. Now, Kirjath Arba was the biggest giant. So Caleb said, you know what? We can take Hebron. Not only that, we can take the biggest giant. In God's strength, we can do anything. But the other reason he wanted to take Hebron 
was because, and sorry, I just didn't keep up with my slides. He wants the city of the biggest giant to prove that he has God's strength. And so he's given Kirjath Arba, which is the land of the biggest giant. So, again, we're not going to turn these up because time again has run away from us. But what's so special about Hebron? Well, first of all, it was the land of the biggest giant. But there's more to it than that. It means a company or a fellowship. That's what Hebron means. So Caleb wanted to be part of the fellowship with Almighty God. It's Abraham's city. So Abraham lived over in Ur. He comes up through the city, uh, through, uh, across, the, rather, from the east. He comes down into the land of uh, Israel. He comes down through uh, Shechem. And then he comes to Mamre. And uh, it tells you in, in uh, Genesis 13, which is called Hebron. So the very first city that Abraham got when he got into the land was Hebron. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, are buried in Hebron. Joshua chapter 20, we won't look at it now, is a city of refuge, a city that points forward to the work of the Lord Jesus. Samson carried the gates of the city to Hebron. And there's a lovely point about that that we won't go into now. If you're interested, come and talk to me afterwards. And with the cities of refuge, they could stay there until the death of their high priest. Now we're jumping, you know, we're making huge assumption here, so just bear with me. Um, with the city of refuge, you could stay there until the death of your high priest. But our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, lives forever. So we never have to leave the city of refuge. We can be covered for our sin forever because our priest lives forever. And so Caleb wanted to have a city of refuge. He wanted to have the place that pointed forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in giving us a fellowship and giving us a forgiveness of our sins. Let's think about the, the Samson one actually for a moment. We've got two minutes left. I've only got two slides after this. Let's think about um, Samson for a moment. So Samson takes the gates of the city, come what city it is now, and he carries them to Hebron. Now can anybody think, with your pro put your prom promises to Abraham hat on, can anybody think, okay, nice, I saw that, we had one hat put on. Everyone put your hat on. Everyone, no, 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 everyone, put your hat on. Still, make sure you're still listening. Good, most people got your hats on. So we've got a Prime Minister Abraham hat on. Possess, Samson takes the gates of a city, promises to Abraham, help me out, what am I thinking? Let's go. Boom, say a bit louder. Nice. What's the gate, what, who's our enemy? Sin and death. So God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, you will possess the gates of your enemies. Our greatest enemy is sin. So in type, Samson takes the gates of a city and takes them to Hebron to say, do you know what? We can overcome our sin and we can have a place in the kingdom and we can have our sins forgiven. And so here is a man who waited 45 years to get Hebron. It's all he got, one city. Other people got huge amounts of land. Caleb, all he wanted was one city. Why? Because his ancestors had the land of Israel. But he didn't want that. He didn't want the whole land. He wanted a place in the kingdom of God. He wanted a part of the promises that God had made to Abraham. And because of that, he was prepared to have one city to fight his giants 
in God's strength and to enter in and to have a place in the kingdom of God. And we are Gentiles. We have no right to the land. It's not ours. But through the promises that God made to Abraham, we too can enter into the promises and, and have a part and a place in the kingdom. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 11, because this is our last reference. Caleb's not there. His name's not mentioned. But I'm sure we'll know this well. And this is um, our last slide. So thank you for bearing with me. You've been a very tentative uh, and a very good audience. So Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of faith. And like I said, Moses is there. Abraham's there. Wonderful men of women of faith. But Caleb's name is not there. But I wonder whether he's there in the mind of the Apostle Paul, if it was Paul, who wrote Hebrews. Let's go down to um, verse 32. What shall I more say? For the time will fail me to have Samson of Gideon of Barak, of Jephthah of David, of Samuel the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness. What's happened here? Why is my... I should have some little ticks coming up, but then it's not working for some reason. Something's happened to my PowerPoint. Um, so we've got a list there of the things that they did. So did Caleb subdue kingdoms? Did he obtain promises? Did he quench the violence of fire, potentially? Did he escape the edge of the sword, potentially? Out of weakness was he made strong? Was he valiant in fight? Did he turn the fight of the armies of the aliens? Yes, he did. He wandered in the deserts and in mountains. We know that because he wanted a mountain that God had promised him. And so, although Caleb's not there in name, I would suggest to you he's there in the mind of the apostle as he wrote this. And have a look what it says at the end. Something's really happened to my PowerPoint. Can you, what can you see? You can't see what I can see. Right, there we go. That's better. Have a look what it says at the end of the chapter. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promises, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Caleb, having obtained a good report through faith, he didn't receive the promise forever, because God provided some better thing for us, that he, without us, should not be made perfect. What a wonderful example of faith, of exhortation, and of inheritance. Thank you very much for listening. thinking then about entering the land so we've thought about uh, Joshua as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ we saw how he uh, overcame sin uh, with the edge of the sword and we saw about the Lord Jesus Christ having his hands pierced and passing through the sword and we thought also didn't we about our golden calf what is it that could stop us from getting to the kingdom and then we also thought about Caleb who was prepared to wait so that he could inherit the city of the biggest giant and be part of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. So we're going to go forward now, right to the end of that wilderness journey. We're right on the brink 
of the promised land. They're on the east side of Jordan. Jerusalem's just over there somewhere. And what happens is uh, Moses is given a charge. They has to hand over the, the baton, if you like, hand over the reins to Joshua. Because Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Why, why was Moses not allowed to enter? What did he do? Just shout out. Hit the rock. How many times? Twice. And so for 38 years, Moses was living with the, 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 the I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the sadness that he was not going to enter. But despite that, he did everything he possibly could to get the children to the brink of the promised land. And, in, and Deuteronomy 31, come there with me uh, in your Bibles. And we are going to see him with Almighty God, standing on the mountains on the east side of, of uh, the Jordan, overlooking the Jordan Valley, seeing the promised land he'd wanted to get to for 80 years, remember? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years as a shepherd before. So 80 years he was waiting to get in the promised land, and he never got there. But he faithfully brought the people right to that point, and that's where we are in our story now. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31 and verse 1, Moses went and spake these words unto all Israel. And he said unto them, I'm 120 years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. And the Lord hath also said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan. The Lord thy God, he will go over before thee, and he will destroy these nations from before thee. And thou shalt possess. And Joshua, he shall go over before thee, as the Lord hath said. And the Lord shall do unto them, as he did to Sihon and to Og, at the kings of the Amorites, in the land of them whom he destroyed. And the Lord shall give them up before your face, that ye may do unto them according unto all the commandment that I commanded you. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be dismayed of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that goeth with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of a good courage. For you must go over with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them. And thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you, neither forsake you. Fear not, neither be dismayed. Incredible faith at the very last moment. You can imagine his heart aching that he wasn't going to be there himself. But his one desire was for Joshua to take over and to be able to enter into the promised land. God would drive their enemies out. They had to be strong and of a good courage. Come over to verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, thy days approach that thou must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation that I may give him a charge. Now that would be the tabernacle because that's been built now, hasn't it? They built that in the wilderness. Joshua and Moses have been here before. They've been together in the tabernacle and Joshua in type had remained there without the camp. And now the time has come for him to get up and to lead the people into the kingdom. So he's presented before the Lord, before Yahweh, in the tabernacle of the congregation. And just as Moses has told the people, so he tells Joshua. Come down to verse 23. And he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge. And he said, be strong and of a good courage. For you, sh you shall bring the children of Israel 
into the land which I swear unto thee, and I will be with you. Now, I was talking to um, a brother last night. I don't know if you would know Brother Joe Palmer. Some of you may know him. I, I was talking to him last night, and he uh, shared something lovely with me that I'd not thought of about Joshua and about Caleb. Caleb is never told, be strong and have a good courage. Joshua's told it at least 10 times in our scriptures, be strong and have a good courage. So we said that Caleb was older. I, I think that's true. But I think also Joshua was perhaps not as... Now, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, uh, uh, perhaps his faith was a little bit weaker. I, I say that with a slight trepidation because I don't, I, I don't mean that. I don't, he didn't have weak faith. But you see what I'm trying to say? He needed that encouragement. He needed to be reminded to be strong. Caleb was one of those people who was always strong, always out there, always putting God first, always full to the brim. Maybe Joshua sometimes just needed a little bit of encouragement. Uh, and so 10 times God says to him, or Moses says to him, be strong and of a good courage. Remember that. Remember the faith of Caleb. Remember your old buddy that you, that's been with you for the last 40 years. And all of us sometimes need a bit of encouragement, don't we? Uh, a bit of encouragement on the way to be strong. And he's reminded again in verse 23, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land that I swear unto them, and I will be with you. I'm going to be with you every single step of the way, Joshua. As you start your journey now as the leader of the, of the, of the children of Israel, I will be with you. Come over with me to Joshua chapter 1. Sorry, I was just um, looking to what chapter we go to. Come with me to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to have a look at the death of Moses in just a moment, which happens at the end of uh, chapter 30, well, in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. But just come to Joshua 1 for a moment. Now it came to pass, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and this people, unto the land that I do give to them, even to the children of of Israel. The time is now. And guys, we are on the edge of the promised land. At any moment, the Lord Jesus Christ could come and call us to cross over the Jordan and enter into the promised land. And I mean that genuinely. We can't really look at it now, going off piece a little bit. In the book of Revelation, chapter 16, it talks about a, a, a power from the north coming down. It talks about the things that we are seeing. The next verse, the Lord Jesus returns. And then the Battle of Armageddon happens. So what is happening in our lifetime right now, the very next thing that has to happen is for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. As far as we know, as we can tell from Scripture, could be today, tomorrow, could be 10 years down the line. But the next thing that's going to happen is that we will be taken into the kingdom. So we are really close. Let's hope it's not 10 years. We're really close to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I genuinely believe that. And so the time is ready for them to cross over. And then he says to them in verse 5, There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you, nor forsake you. He's reminded again, Joshua, I am with you. As I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. And I suggest to you that at some point in Moses' life, the people that were close to him let him down. His brother let him down. His uh, nephews let him down. Um, forgotten their names, just slipped from my brain. Uh, the ones offered the strange fire. Koradath and Abiram let him down. His sister let him down. The people let him down. But God never let him down. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Just turn back a page. You might not need to, but I, I need to turn back a page in my Bible. Turn back to Deuteronomy 34, just for a moment. Because what happens is, as I say, um, as we were told a moment ago, he couldn't enter the land. But he is shown the land. Deuteronomy 34. He goes to the plains of Moab, the, the, the top of Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. And he sees the land of Gilgal unto Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, and to the utmost parts of the sea. And the south, and the plain, and the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, and to Zoar. And God says to him, this is the land, I swear, unto Isaac. I've caused you to see it with your eyes, but you will not go over thither. You've done it, Moses. Your job is complete. What then happens? Verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knows of the sepulchre unto this day. Let me think, well, that's a pretty tough gig for Moses, isn't it? Here you go, Moses, look, huh, look what you can't have. It's not that at all. Moses, your job is complete. You have done what I've asked you to do. And look who buries him. It's, it's beautiful. God buried Moses. God never forsook Moses, even to the very last moment of his life. As he entered into his sleep, into his rest, he was buried by almighty God. And no man knows where his sepulchre is unto this day. God never forsook Joshua. Uh, sorry, God never forsook Moses. And he says to Joshua, I will never forsake you. Back in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and of a good courage. It comes out in verse 6. It comes out again in verse 7. It comes out again in verse 9. And it comes out again in verse 18. That he has to be strong and of a good courage. Just come over for a moment, keep a marker in chapter 1 and come over to chapter 10. Because what's lovely in chapter 10 is it almost seems like Joshua has now fully put his trust and faith in God. He's a changed man now. And he's able to say to the people in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua said unto them, fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage, for the Lord shall do all your enemies against whom you fight. And so he's now able to say to the people, we've got to be strong. He's learned that lesson. He's now fully committed to putting his trust and faith in Almighty God. And he's able then to pass that message on to the people as well. But what does it mean to be strong and of a good courage? Well, keep your finger in Joshua and just come back to Genesis chapter 19, which is the account of Lot leaving Sodom. So, Lot's leaving Sodom. It's going up in fire and brimstone. He lingers in verse 16. And what happens is that the angel, the men, lay hold 
upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. The Lord be merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. And that word laid hold there is the same word be strong that we have in Joshua chapter 1 uh, and, and in other uh, parts where that, that phrase comes. Be strong. The only time that we are strong is when we are holding the hand of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that as a, as a concept. It's quite a nice concept, isn't it? When you go back into the world on Monday, go back into school or college or work, whatever it is that you're doing, you have to tell anybody because they might think you're a bit weird, but you can, you can hold on to God's hand and he'll lead you and he's right there next to you. He's here right now. You can't see him, but I can. He's holding my hand. It's a gorgeous thought that God is holding our hand. We can be strong when we're holding the hand of God. It's not our own strength because we haven't got any strength of our own. It's only God's strength that we have, and we can hold it. And what did, what did Lot's wife do? Do you remember? Are you still there, Genesis 19? What did Lot's wife do? What he said that? She did look back. What else did she do? Anyone see? I think it says it. Let me double check. She definitely looked back. Say again. She wanted to go back. Yes, yeah, she wanted to be back in Sodom. I think it says she let go of his hand. What verse is it? Let me have a look. Um, let me see if I can find it. Hang on. Can't find it now. Acts doesn't say she let go. It just says she looked back. I thought it said she let go. It, um, is it verse 16? But his wife looked back from behind Sorry, it doesn't actually say that. I thought it said she let go, so ignore that. Maybe delete that from the video, because that's not true. But what she did is she looked back. And I suggest to you that she let go, because it's quite a nice, nice thought, isn't it? If she did let go, then she lost the strength of God, because she let go of his hand. And what happened to her? She turned to a pillar of salt. Sorry, Joan, you're going to say that, weren't you? She turned to a pillar of salt. Her life was ended because she relied on her own strength. She was looking back to the things of Sodom. She was supposed to leave them behind, but she let go of the angel's hand and she turned to a pillar of salt. And to have courage means to be alert mentally, to have a strong heart, just like Caleb's heart. Caleb's heart, he said, was full of God, but the people's heart melted, didn't it? But remember in our talk about Caleb, his heart was full. His heart was set on the things of God. And... Even the Lord Jesus Christ had to receive courage. Make a note of it, we won't turn there now, but in Luke 22, when the Lord Jesus is in the garden, just before his crucifixion, an angel comes and strengthens him. It's the same word in the Greek as we have, uh, be strong and have a good courage. It's the same idea, the same word coming through. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had to have encouragement from his father. And it's used a number of times as well of the, as by the Lord Jesus Christ to, to various people to be of good cheer, to be of good comfort. It's the same idea, to be strong. And so all of us, from Joshua to the Lord Jesus Christ, all need to have strength from Almighty God. And, and the Apostle Paul says that my strength is made perfect in weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. It's not about ourselves. We can't do it on our own. We have to do it with God on our side. And if God's on our side, we can kill the biggest giant that will ever face us. 
And the way that we get God on our side is to have the word of God in our lives. Back in Joshua chapter 1, let's just look at this together. So, verse 7, only be thou strong, hold on to the hand of Almighty God, and have your heart set right before him, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it, from the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law, now don't forget, they only had the law at that point. We've got a little bit more than that, so we've got to make sure we read all of it. So this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So the only way we can be prosperous, the only way we can have success in our life, is by taking in the word of God every single day. Uh, and that's what God said to Joshua. Uh, and if we do that, then we can be strong and of a good courage to not be afraid and nor to be dismayed. And so I just want you to imagine for a moment, Moses has passed off the scene, Joshua has said his goodbyes, and he's standing upon the mountains on the east side of Jordan, surveying the land just as Moses had done with God a few moments before, perhaps. And he's looking and he's thinking about what he's got to do. He's got to take the people over into the promised land. And I suggest to you that he's got two battles that he's got to face. The first one is a spiritual battle of the people. Because as we know, they get downhearted quite a bit. They lose their faith. And the other one is a military battle. Now, I suggest to you, he doesn't care about the military battle because he knows that God is going to destroy the nations. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, make a note of it, he's told, and Moses tells them, that the nations in the land will be, drawn, will be driven out like hornets. So he's not worried about the spiritual battle. He's just worried, sorry, he's not worried about the military battle. He's just worried about the spiritual battle. So he's got words ringing in his ears. Keep your finger in Joshua and come back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Because this is his job now. He's got to lead the people. He's got to pick up from where Moses left off. And this is what he's got to do before they're able to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy 20, no, sorry, Deuteronomy 11 and verse 26. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandment of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord. But turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass when the Lord thy God hath brought thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, that you'll go and put a blessing upon Mount Gerizim and a curse upon Mount Ebal. So this is ringing in his ears. This is his job now, a blessing and a curse. There's one thing you've got to do for a blessing. There's three things you've got to do if you want to be cursed. So it's pretty easy, isn't it? Simple choice, really. I'd rather do one thing than three and get a blessing for it. And so what we have to do, as we've just seen, is to have the commandments of God ringing in our ears. And when he gets them over the Jordan, he's got to get them up to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and get them to make a choice. What choice are you going to make today? Amount of blessing, amount of cursing. The choice you've got to make. Not tomorrow, because it might be too late. What are you going to do today? 
What's your choice that you're going to make today? Come over to Deuteronomy 27. Just to really drive home the point, the importance of having the word of God in our hearts. Now, we can't read all of this because um, we, we don't have the time to do that. But maybe make a note of it and read it again in, in your own time. But what they have to do when they pass over Jordan, verse 2, is they have to get great stones and plaster them with plaster and write upon it all the words of this law. I've lost my place. When thou art passed over, that thou mayst go in unto the land which the Lord thy God gives thee, a land that flows with milk and honey. So when you get in, the first thing you've got to do is set up these stones and, and write the words of God on them. Uh, verse 8, write it plainly. And, and the idea there is to, to write it large so that everybody who walks past can see it because it's only by taking in the word of God that we can have good success and we can have God on our side. And so what we've got to do in our life is we've got to make a space. We've got to find a place to choose because that's what the children of Israel are now um, faced with. They've got to make a choice. And we every day have to make a choice, a blessing or a cursing. Which one do you want? Where do you want to be? And you have to make that choice. And I'd suggest, if you haven't made it already, start thinking about it today. Because back in Joshua uh, chapter 1, within three days, verse 11, they're going to pass over this Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God gives you. And so what then happens then is that Joshua sends out spies. It's interesting, and he sends out two. Why do you think he sends out two? Why do you think he sends out two? Pardon? I reckon that's probably the case, yeah. Because he thought, you know what? The two are more likely to come back with a good report. And he sends them out secretly. Now, you'd always think a spy would be secret, wouldn't you? He wouldn't be a very good spy if he, if he wasn't secret. But I think the point here is that it was secret from the rest of the nation of Israel. He didn't want them to know that he was sending them out because he didn't want to cause hysteria within the camp of Israel. And so these two men go and they view the land, even Jericho. And as we know, they come to the house of Rahab. Now, we don't have time to look at this in, in detail today. It's a wonderful story. But we haven't got time. I just want us for a moment just to look at Rahab's faith. And it's amazing that the, all they seem to do is go to Jericho, they go to Rahab's house, they have a chat with her, they leave, they hide for three days, and then they go back to see Joshua. They don't seem to survey any other part of the land other than Rahab's house. But I think the reason they do that is because of the faith of Rahab. Let's just have a look at verse 8. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, and she said unto them, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. I know that Yahweh, a Gentile woman, a harlot, and I don't need to explain to you what that is, she knows the covenant name of Almighty God. She doesn't even say hello as far as the scriptures tell her. She walks up the roof, she sees these two men, and she says, I know all about your God. And what does she know? I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. What happened 38 years before? I mean, 
we can't go in because there's giants. They're, they're, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And Rahab says, all of the people in the land are fainting because of you. They have nothing to worry about. And Joshua would have heard these words as the spies came back and it would have filled him with courage that they were able to go and take the land. Now, I've got some cross-references up on the screen. I'm not going to turn them up now just because I promise you a short assessment. and I want to try and keep to that. So just make a note of these and have a look back because what she's doing is she's quoting scripture. So this lady, a most un- unusual, I guess, in, 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 in sort of day-to-day terms of someone that would understand the truth, understands what God has promised his people. And the first one is that he's going to give them the land and that the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard of how the Lord, how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And when you came out of Egypt, what he did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were over the other side Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom he utterly destroyed. Two incidents, 40 years apart. We know that he brought you out of Egypt. We know that he destroyed Og and Sihon. And we know that he's going to give you the land. What an incredible testimony from this woman. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. What happened to the hearts of the people 38 years before? They melted because they didn't think they could go in. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. And she's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 39, the words of Moses. What an incredible faith that this woman has. What an incredible testimony that would give so much encouragement to these two men as she heard her speak. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear by me unto Yahweh, since I have showed you kindness, that he will show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Give me something that I can do to help my father's house. Exodus chapter 12, make a note of it. The blood of the Passover was to be a token. And then she's harking back to the Passover and saying, you had a token before you left Egypt. I want a token that I am going to be saved. And what do they give her? Verse 18, behold, when we come into this land, you shall bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou did let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy household home unto thee. And it shall be that whoever is in the doors of thy house, his blood shall be upon his head. Uh, Sorry, and it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head. What happened at Passover? If you left the house, you were toast. It's the same principle here now. You've got to remain in the house. It's the only way, Rahab, that you and your family can be saved. Now, I was going to ask you to get your phone out and have a look at what that word for line is, but we haven't got time to do that either. It's the first time in Scripture that we have the word for hope. It's the word tikvah. And so what the spies say to Rahab is, I want you to put this tikvah in your window, this line of hope. And it's the only way that you can be saved. And when we come by, we'll see a scarlet thread, not scarlet around the doorposts, a piece of scarlet thread hanging from your window. That's your token. That is how you know that you're going to be saved because we believe that we are going to take this land. And so what the spies then do in verse 23, 
The two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all the things that befell them. What befell them? The testimony of Rahab. It's all they seem to hear about before they turn and go. And they said unto the Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered it into our hands. All the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country, do faint because of us. And they quote Rahab's words. Do you know what? This is it. This is the time. We are now able to go and take the land. So we come then to chapter 3. And Joshua rose early in the morning and removed from Shittim and came to Jordan. He and all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. And that ark represents, it's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what they are told is that you have to follow the ark. When you see the Levites bearing the ark, the time has come for you to cross over Jordan and to enter into the promised land. And then have a look at verse 4. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go. The ark would go 2,000 cubits before them. Why? So that they would know the way that they must go. For you have not passed this way before. Isn't that gorgeous? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to go 2,000 cubits before you in type. Why? Because you don't know where you're going. You've never been here before, but the Lord Jesus has walked that path already in type. The Lord Jesus Christ has gone 2,000 years before us. Why? Because we don't know where we're going. We've never passed this way before. Tomorrow, we have no idea what tomorrow brings. But what we do know is that the Lord Jesus has already walked there. And so we can hold on to his hand and he will lead us as we enter the next day of our life. And then verse 5, And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Sanctify yourselves. Today. Get ready. Today. Tomorrow, that's God's. He's going to do wonders among you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Focus on today. Get yourself ready today. Tomorrow is the Lord's. And there's a brother, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, He's fallen asleep now, Brother Dennis Gillett. And he suggested that another way to look at that verse was, today is yours. Tomorrow is the Lord's. Don't worry about it. Whatever challenge on Monday morning, don't worry about it. Just worry about today. Focus on today. What are you going to do today? Tomorrow, God's already been there. He'll look after you. Just don't let go of his hand. Come back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because our best experience of God is in the past. Because we haven't been in the future, have we? We don't know what the future will happen. But God has been there in the past. And God is going to be there in the future. And our experience in the past will remind us that he'll be there in the future. And so Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, And you shall remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. 
And Joshua is saying to the people, God has led you once. Remember, you can look back over the wilderness and you can see all the way that the Lord your God has led you. And the idea of that word to lead is not to be in front of, but it's to walk side by side. God has walked with us side by side. And we can look back and we can see God at work in our life. And you may be able to do that. I can look back over my life and I can see times where I've seen very visibly the hand of God at work. And the, the children of Israel could do the same. And you may be able to do that too. Very moments in our life where we can see God's hand at work. He's been there in the past. He will be there in the future. And our experience of God in the past allows us to be prepared for what he will be like in the future. And God is going to lead them. We saw, didn't we, from Deuteronomy 31, that it was God who would lead them to the promised land. Let's just have a look at one more um, passage. It's really lovely. Come with me to Psalm 56. I absolutely love this psalm. It's a psalm of David. And David is in a tricky time of his life. He is on the run from Saul. And he needs to put his trust in Almighty God. So Psalm 56, I'll just give you a moment to turn it up. And you may think, well, David, you know, a great stalwart of faith. The, one of the greatest kings to ever sit upon the throne uh, of Israel. The greater son, or sorry, the greater father of the Lord Jesus. But even he got afraid. What time I'm afraid, verse 3 of Psalm 56, I will put my trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word. And that word praise is the idea of boast. So when the chips are down, David says, I will boast in the word of God. In God, I've put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do unto me? It doesn't matter what people around us say. If we put our trust in God, then he will help us. And then this is just gorgeous in verse 8. Thou tellest all my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. Put your tears in a bottle. Now, I'm sure all of us have cried. We may have cried for joy over something happy in our life. But most likely, we've cried when we've had a sadness, a difficult time in our life. And I'm sure all of us can remember a time when our parents would wipe away a tear from our eyes. Give you a cuddle tell you it's going to be okay and they're right there next to you aren't they picking you up and I do it all the time with my kids I've got a five-year-old or two-year-old you'll see them tomorrow they're sad you pick them up you give them a cuddle you wipe away their tears do you know what God says I do that as well but I don't just wipe them away and chuck them into the toilet I put them into a bottle I remember your sadness I remember your joy I know the wanderings that you've taken I know the journey that you've gone on I've been there right beside you I can't get tears from um, brother Matt at the back, he's too far away. If I want to catch his tears in a bottle, I've got to be right there by him. And that's where God is. He's right here. If we allow him, he will be there through the highs and through the lows. And then he says in verse 9, this I know, for God is with me. Isn't that wonderful? And I wonder if he's picking up on these ideas from Joshua, that God will be there and, and help him as he goes through um, uh, the, the challenges of his life. So come back with me to Joshua. I'm getting a bit carried away and time is, is, is running away. So let's go back to Joshua. Um, 
chapter 3. So the ark would go 2,000 cubits so that they would know the way to go because they've not passed this way before. And then verse 8, And you will command the priests that they bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When you are come to the brink of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in Jordan. The last time they were told to stand still was at the brink of the Red Sea. To stand still and to see the salvation of the Lord. And I think what Joshua is saying to the people is, there's a river to cross. How do you get across it? We remember all the way that the Lord our God has led us. He parted the Red Sea once. If he parted the Red Sea, I'm pretty sure he'll be able to part, to, 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 to part the Jordan. And so the priests then have to stand still. And as they there, they stand still in the water and it passes. And then verse 9. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you. And they would know then that the enemies were going to be um, driven out from among them. And then verse 13, And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan be cut off, from the waters that shall come from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. And the priests had to put their bare feet into the water. Now that is very significant. We are running out of time, but let's just have a look at this, because this is pretty cool. So come with me to, to Deuteronomy 25. You still with me? Do we stand on our chairs? Do we just smack our faces? Are we good? A few more minutes? Yeah? Okay, cool. Nathan needs a smack. Do it again, but if you need to, just don't do it too hard. I've got to take you home, and I don't want you to get cross with your mum. Right, so the priests are barefoot. They had to put their bare feet into the water. Now, that is significant. Every word, every detail is important. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5 talks about redeeming a family member. So, if you are married and part of you... Uh, the, the husband or the wife died, or the husband rather died, that the brother would have the opportunity to take that wife to his own. And if he didn't want to do that, then what he had to do was take off his shoe, spit in it, and give it to the woman. Now, the symbol of that is that he's saying, I don't want to take on that responsibility. I'm not able to redeem that woman. In your own time, have a look at Ruth. Because what Boaz does, Boaz keeps his shoe on. And Boaz redeems Ruth from the marriage that she had uh, for, for her husband who had died. And so the priests enter the water barefoot. And the point that I'm trying to make is this. They are saying, we are not the ones who is redeeming Israel. What's redeeming Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Give me a nod. So they keep, thumbs up, thanks buddy. They, they keep their shoes off because they are not able to redeem Let's have a look at this. Because salvation comes by the Lord Jesus. Come with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 27. And this is, this is our reading for tomorrow, actually. So I was going to do a recitation on it, but I've decided to do it on something else. But we're, we're picking up on it now. 
So maybe impress some of the brothers and sisters tomorrow with your John chapter 1 knowledge. So have a look at verse 27. We are going into the middle of a discourse, but we'll pick it up. So John the Baptist is talking. He says, verse 26, I baptize with water. There comes someone after me, verse 27. He it is who comes after me, is preferred before me. He's shoe latchet, I am not worthy to unloose. John says, I can't take off the shoe of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why not? Because he's the redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one. He's got to keep his shoe on. Nobody, not even John the Baptist, can take off the Lord Jesus Christ's shoe. Because he is the one who will redeem. Verse 28. Where's this happening? These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, has anybody got a note in their margin? What does Bethabara mean? Does anybody know? Pardon? House of the Ford, yeah, I like that. The other one I've heard is the place of crossing over. So where's all this happening? It's happening at the very place where the, the priests put their bare feet into the water and the children of Israel crossed over into the promised land. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's cool, right? That's cool, give me an off, that's cool. I think that's really cool. What then happens? Verse 29, the next day John sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of of the world and back in joshua chapter 3 it happens at the time of passover it happens they cross over on the 10th day which is the day that they take the lamb into their house verse 19 they then place the stones in verse 20 and then they keep the passover uh, as the first thing as they crossed over into the promised land i think that's pretty cool Let's just have a look at it now. I've got it up on, uh, up on screen here. Uh, chapter 4. Let's just go back to those verses for a second, just so you can see those together. So chapter 3 and verse... Um, sorry, that must be... Uh, I've got the wrong reference there, I think. Maybe it's chapter 4. Yeah, sorry, it's chapter 4, sorry. Verse 19. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the, the tenth day of the first month, the day that the lamb was taken into the house. And then we can see, um, it must be chapter five. Yeah, sorry. And then in chapter five and verse 10, it says chapter four on the screen, but that is incorrect. I'll change that before I pass the slides over. Uh, and the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. Now that blows my mind. The, the, the priests are barefoot because they can't redeem. The ark goes 2,000 cubits before a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who keeps his shoe on at the place of the crossing over. And they kept the Passover that reminds them um, of... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would go before them. Just one more thing I want us to look at uh, before we draw our thoughts to a close. Come down with me to chapter 5 and verse 13. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood over against him, with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us, or art or for our adversaries. So here's a man with a sword in his hand, reminding Joshua in his fight against Amalek. And he said, Nay, but as a captain of the Lord of hosts, 
am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face and did worship him. She says, who, who are you for? Are you for us or for adversaries? And he says, well, actually, I'm not with either because I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. I'm the captain of God's army. And I'm ready to go and fight for you, to go so that you can enter the land. And what's Joshua got to do? Verse 15, And the captain of the Lord of hosts said unto Joshua, Loose now thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Who was told those words 80 years ago? The place where you stand is holy ground. Who was told that 80 years before? Moses. Talking about them entering the land that he would go and take the people from Egypt. And now here he is. Uh, well, obviously here's Joshua now. 80 years later, taking off his shoe for the place where he stands is holy ground. Because this is God's battle. And what Joshua has to do is lead the people spiritually. Because God is on their side. And they're able to go in and take the land. And as we know, that's what they do. And we don't have time to look at all of the battles, but we know that they go and they take Jericho, they take Ai, Ai, they take the whole of the land. And as we saw with Caleb this morning, he got his inheritance when the land was given to them. And so we've seen, and I appreciate that was a little bit fast maybe uh, as we, uh, we finished off there, but come and see me if you want any, any help with or any um, clarification on any of that. But we've seen today a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in defeating sin, cleansing the people from idolatry, and we thought about perhaps the name of our golden calf, something that was perhaps stopping us from getting to the kingdom. We've seen a Gentile who was prepared, who fought giants in God's strength, and he waited 45 years in order to receive his inheritance. And we too must be prepared to wait. And we've entered the promised land. We've remembered all the way that the Lord our God has led us. And we have to sanctify ourselves because today is ours. Tomorrow is the Lord's. And we've not passed this way before. Thank you. Numbers 28, which gives to us the calendar of the offerings and particularly focuses, I think, upon the burnt offering. And we're quite spoiled, aren't we, with our readings for today? We could have had John and had a lovely exhortation from there. But I want us to think about numbers particularly because Joshua and Caleb would have gone through these things on a day by day, week by week, month by month basis. And if you were here yesterday, you would have seen and you remembered, for example, that they kept the Passover on the day that they crossed over into the promised land. But let's just quickly go through the chapter and just see what we are presented with uh, here. So in the first eight verses, we have listed for us some of the daily offerings and particularly the daily burnt offerings that were made. We're not going to go through in great detail, but we'll just pick up on the burnt offerings. We'll see. So it comes out, first of all, in verse 3. It's there again in verse 6, a continual burnt offering. When we then come down to verse 9, we see that these were the offerings that took place on the Sabbath day 
And we can see twice in verse 10. This is the burnt offering every Sabbath beside the continual burnt offering. So it was done daily. It was done twice on the, the Sabbath day because the, an extra one was done for the Sabbath day. We then have verse 11 through to verse 15, the things that were done monthly. In the beginning of months, you shall offer, verse 11, a burnt offering. Verse 13, a lamb for a burnt offering, a sweet savour, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. Uh, verse 14, the burnt offering of every month throughout the months of the year. And then verse 15, these things will be, be done beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offering. Uh, then verse 16, the offerings that were done on the day of Passover. So beside the lamb that they obviously slaughtered, they had to give a burnt offering. Verse 19, ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram, uh, etc. And then <clears throat> we come down to verse 23. Ye shall offer these things beside the burnt offering in the morning, which is for a continual burnt offering. You can see the point coming time and time again. It's about them giving a burnt offering. And we're going to think about that, uh, particularly this afternoon. And then verse 24, these things will be done beside the continual burnt offering. And then verse 26, to the end of the chapter, we have the burnt offerings that took place on the Feast of Weeks. That week where they remembered what it would be like uh, to be uh, in the kingdom. And then verse 27, you shall offer a burnt offering for a sweet savour unto the Lord. And then verse 31, you shall offer them beside the continual burnt offering and his meat offering. They shall be unto you without blemish and their drink offering. So 14 times in this chapter, hopefully you caught all of them, we are reminded that they were to offer these burnt offerings. And Joshua and Caleb would have been part of that daily, weekly, monthly, as they travelled uh, through the wilderness and continued as they went into the promised land. So with that in mind, come with me to Leviticus chapter 1. Because Leviticus 1 gives us the detail <clears throat> of the burnt offering. And it's interesting, isn't it? That when we come to Leviticus, the book all about the law, the first thing we're presented with is the burnt offering. And it points us forward to the work of the Lord Jesus who gave his all. But I'd suggest to you that it also talks to us about our response in terms of what has been done for us through the sacrifice of Christ that we've come to remember this afternoon. And I want you to notice is some of the detail uh, as we go through. So first of all then, in verse 3 of Levit Leviticus chapter 1, And his offering, if his offering be a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer it a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. It had to be a male. It stipulated that. The Lord doesn't always stipulate what gender the animal was. But with the burnt offering, it had to be a male. And it had to be without blemish. I'll just read to you from Young's Literal Translation for verse 3. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering out of the herd, a male, a perfect one, he doth bring near unto the opening of the tent of meeting. He doth bring it near at his own pleasure before Yahweh. So it had to be a male. A perfect one, pointing us forward very beautifully to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has to bring it to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. That also comes out, doesn't it, in verse 10. We have the same idea coming out in verse 10. Let's just look at that for a moment. So verse 10, if his offering be of the flock, 
namely the sheep or of the goat, for a burnt offering, he shall bring it a male without blemish. A male, a perfect one. And as we said then, they bring it to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. The way in to our salvation, the way, the way in of their salvation, was that there was only one way in, wasn't there, to the tabernacle. There was one door right at the front, and that was the only way in for them to, to, to be able to go and do that offering. And there's only one way in to our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who we've come to remember this afternoon. And of course, uh, the, the work of the Lord Jesus is fundamental to our uh, salvation that we think about this afternoon. And then also you see in verse 3 that it was voluntary. So they bring it to the door, and it was a voluntary offering. The offerings for, for sin were not voluntary. They were compulsory. If you sinned, you had no choice. You had to bring an animal to Aaron who would kill it and sacrifice it on your behalf. But the burnt offering, we well, did that if you wanted to. If you felt the need, if you felt the desire, then that was something that you were able to do. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. And we also notice in verse 9, let me just find it, uh, verse 9, but the inwards and his legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of the offering to be, to be a burnt offering, an offering made by fire of sweet, a sweet savour unto the Lord. All of it was burnt. Some of the offerings, they ate them. The burnt offering, all of it was consumed. This is about giving your all. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his all. It's about our response. We have to give our all. We thought this morning, you can't have your foot in both camps. You can't serve God and mammon. You've got to give your all. And what I also want you to notice is that the offerer was very much involved in the killing and preparation of the animal. It shows, I think, that if you want to be forgiven, you have to give God your all. This was about this individual going and giving their all. Let's have a look at it again. So the offerer brings it to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation in verse 3. And then verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable for him to make an atonement for him. And then verse 5, And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle. And then, And he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, and then the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar. So the offerer was very much involved. He even killed the animal, showing so perfectly how he was, this is, this is me, this is me giving my all to Almighty God. And as we said then, Aaron and his sons would then lay the wood in order and then place the fire under the, burnt, uh, under the altar uh, of the burnt offering. And as we've said, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself willingly. He gave his all. Uh, keep a marker in Leviticus. We're going to come back there uh, in, in just a moment. But uh, do come with me to Psalm 40. Just to remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus gave his all. So a psalm of David. Psalm 40, and we are going to go in at verse 6. 
sacrifice and offering that I did not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings hast not desired. Then I said, Lo, I am come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O God. It's all about the offerer. It wasn't about the animal. It was about the offerer who was giving it. We won't turn there now. But if you haven't got it in your margin, write in your margin. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Because the writer of the Hebrews, whether it's Paul or not, doesn't matter. But the writer of the Hebrews picks up this psalm, Psalm 40. And he changes one very important word. Under inspiration, he changes the word ear. And he changes it to the word body. And he says, a body thou hast prepared. He picks up that verse and he takes us and he shows us. It's exactly pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave not only his ear, but he gave his body. He gave everything. And because the Lord Jesus Christ gave everything, then all we have to do is open our ears and listen and respond to what he is saying to us. And we think, don't we, about the words of the Apostle Peter in John chapter 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have to open our ears so that we can be granted eternal life. And the other thing I want us to notice, come back to Leviticus chapter 1. The other thing I want us to notice about the burnt offering is that there is a particular order, a particular way that things had to be done. So it comes out, first of all, in verse 7. That the priests would lay the wood in order upon the fire. It's not random, it's order. Verse 8. And the priests, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire. And then... Verse 12, and he shall cut into pieces with its head and the fat, and the priest shall lay them in order. And I'd suggest to you that what we're being told here is that when we come to God, when we approach God, when we dedicate our lives to God, we have to do it in the way that God wants us to do it. We can't do it in our own way. There is a way, there is an order, there is a process that we have to follow in order to approach our Heavenly Father and have a relationship with him. And as we thought a moment ago, uh, David said, I delight to do thy will, O God. It's about the way that he thinks, rather than us thinking that we know better and trying to do things our own way. And we're going to come back to that uh, a little bit later on. And then when we do do things the right way, God accepts them as a sweet savour. And that comes out again three times uh, in this chapter. So the end of verse 9, these things will be a sweet savour unto the Lord. Verse 13, it will be a sweet savour unto the Lord. And then the end of the chapter in verse 17, these things will be a sweet savour unto the Lord. When we approach God in the right way, when we accept God in the right way, when we give our ear and open our ear and follow the example of the Lord Jesus, then these things will be a sweet savour to our God. Let's just go back uh, to verse 8 for a moment because we have here four parts of the animal we have the head in verse 8 we've got the fat we've got the inwards in verse 9 and then the legs in verse 9 so keep your finger in Leviticus and come with me to Mark chapter 12 because we're going to see now 
about how we can give our all, very literally. And in Mark chapter 12, we have the example of one of the scribes who came to see Jesus. And he asks him what the greatest commandment is. Mark chapter 12 and at verse 28. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, what is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered and said unto him, the first of all the commandments is, hear Israel, the Lord our God is one God, uh, one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none greater commandment than these two. And we think about those words for a moment that were taken from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Who heard them first? Joshua and Caleb. And so we have four things then. We have the mind, we have the soul, we have the heart, and we have the strength. And I suggest to you that those four things coincide with the four parts of the animal that we have in Leviticus chapter 1. So we have the head, which is our mind, our thinking. Our thinking's got to be in tune with the things of Almighty God. We've got to give our mind over. We think about the fat or the life. We have to give our soul, we have to give our energy over to Almighty God. And then we have the inwards in Leviticus chapter 1. And that's what's in, inside here. It's our heart. The word of God has to go into our heart and change us and make a difference in the way that we live our lives. And then we have to give almighty God our strength. Our legs have got to be in service to our God. We've got to make sure that we give everything to him. Our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength have to be in tune with the things of God. And then what's the response of this scribe? Well, he says to him, well, Jesus said, uh, the scribe said, uh, verse 32, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he, and to love him with all thy heart, and with all thy understanding, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, that scribe, went away with these words ringing in his ears. And when Jesus saw, he answered him discreetly. He said unto him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So if we do the same things, if we give our all to our God, those four things, then we too will not be far from the kingdom of God. What a lovely example. What a lovely exhortation uh, that is for us this afternoon. And what this scribe does is he recognised that the burnt offering was about an attitude of yourself and how you viewed God and viewed your neighbour and your willingness to give your all. And the, the response of the Lord Jesus was made up of two parts, wasn't it? The first was to love God, and the second was to love your neighbour. And the word for second there, and it's just slipped my mind, slipped where it is, that the word for second in verse 31 there is the idea of something that is equal in strength. So these two things going hand in hand, to love God and to love your neighbour. We need to be good at doing both. And Jesus showed us that to, that to combine these two things in a way that had never been seen before. So when we looked to the Lord Jesus, we saw these two things, to love God 
and to love your neighbour, manifest in a way that had never been seen before. And we have come this afternoon to examine ourselves, to show how we measure up, or to see how we measure up to the example of the Lord Jesus. And perhaps as we do this, we can think about these commandments before we eat and drink, and think about whether we truly are giving our all. So as we said then, the burnt offering shows us our dedication to the Lord Jesus, who gave us all, and what our response should be to the things that Jesus has done for us, enabling our sins to be forgiven. And we have to make a choice. I don't know how many times I've said that this weekend, but it's probably quite a lot, I reckon. We have to make a choice. Do we give our all and dedicate our lives to God and have our sins forgiven? Or do we do things that we want to do ourselves? And that's a decision that we have to make. The first time that the burnt offering is mentioned in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 9. We're not going to turn there. What's interesting is it's just at the point that Noah has come out of the ark. Now, what's the first thing that we're told about Noah? If we're in our session, they probably would have shouted and answered, but I don't expect to do that now. We're told that Noah was perfect. Noah was a perfect one. Noah was without blemish. That's what that word means. It's the same word. He was perfect in the way that he lived his life. He gave his all. Yeah, of course he sinned. We, we know that because the only person that's not sinned is Christ. But in his attitude towards God, he was without blemish. What I want us to do, though, is go to the second occurrence um, of the burnt offering inscription. It's in Genesis 22. So come with me to Genesis 22. And what we have here is a wonderful picture of the work of God and of his only son, who we have come together to remember this morning. And of course, this is the account of Abraham offering up Isaac, his son. And I don't think I'd really appreciated the emphasis in this chapter, before I looked at this, on the burnt offering. Let's just go through it together. So I'm going to presume that you know the story. So Abraham is asked to go and sacrifice his son. And God says to him in verse 2, Take now thy son, thy only son whom thou lovest, and get thee into the, mount, into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering. And we know, don't we, this is a wonderful picture, a wonderful type of God and his son, who also was sacrificed in the mountains of Moriah. And then... Come down to verse 3. And Abram rose early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his sons with him and Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for a burnt offering. And then verse 6. Well, he says, let's just read. Let's just go read it. The third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And the, Abram said unto the young men, Abide ye here with the, the ass, and I and the lad will go and yonder and worship, and will come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And we think about the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the wood for his own sacrifice. And Isaac then, in verse 7, spake unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together, and they came to the place which God 
had told him of. And we know the story, don't we? And we'll come down to verse 13. And Abraham lift up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place, in the stead of his son. And he called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Jireh, God will provide. Isn't that an amazing picture? An amazing type of of the Lord Jesus who gave his all. And, And here is a picture of Isaac, the burnt offering, who gave his all. Uh, and points us forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want us to do now is, I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We started here uh, yesterday. It feels like a very long time ago, but it was only yesterday. We started here yesterday and we thought about the wilderness journey being an example for us. And we thought about Joshua and Caleb passing through the Red Sea, eating of that spiritual meat and that spiritual drink, uh, which was the Lord Jesus Christ that followed them. And we thought about that with most of them, with many of them, God was not well pleased. And how these things were there for an example. Despite what God had done for them, in bringing them up out of Egypt, a picture of leaving sin behind, being baptized, sharing in bread and wine together. With most of them, God was not well pleased. And I'd suggest to you that there are three things, three things that God asks us to do. The first one is to be baptized, and we can see that the children of Israel were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We then need to recognize our position before God and before the Lord Jesus. And the third thing that we have to do is a memorial of Christ's death and of his obedience that we remember through bread and through wine. And so we've had baptism in, in verse 1. We've then got a remembrance of the Lord Jesus in through bread and through wine coming out in verse 16. Let's have a look at that together. So the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Well, we being one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So it's these things that bind us together in union. The baptism is the start of the journey, and then we bind ourselves together in union through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then come down to verse 31. Because the Apostle Paul tells us what our response should be. He says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give yourself completely over to God. Give none offence neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the ecclesia of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So we have to do everything in our lives to the glory of God. Not seeking our own profit. It's not about doing things for our own benefit, or because we feel like it, or we think it should be done that way. It's because we have to do it 
in the way that God has asked us to do. And what does the Apostle Paul want? Have a look again at verse 33. He wants the many to be saved. The complete contrast to the example that he'd given at the beginning of the chapter with the children of Israel, where with many of them, God was not well pleased. But the Apostle Paul's desire is for the many to be saved. Not two, in Joshua and Caleb's example, but for the many to be saved. And because of that, he gives over his whole entire life and urges them to make a choice, to do the right thing and to give our all so that the many can be saved. When we come then to chapter 11, the Apostle Paul was so confident of his position before Almighty God and before the Lord Jesus Christ, he was able to say, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. And that word follower is the idea of a mimic. Mimic me. Do what I do. Follow my example. Now, the Apostle Paul also tells us that he's the chief of sinners. But again, he was comfortable in his position and his dedication to his God. In what he was trying to do, he was able to say, mimic me because I mimic the Lord Jesus Christ. Use me as your example. If you're not sure how to be like Christ, follow the Apostle Paul. If you're not sure how to be like Christ, follow Joshua and Caleb's example. And you can see that same point coming out again. So the Apostle Paul then goes on to talk about head coverings. I don't want us to spend ages talking about this, but I just want us to notice we thought earlier on about a process, about an order in the way that we do things. And the Apostle Paul now is, is laying down for us a principle and a, and a recognition of our position before Almighty God. It's a very balanced argument. 16 times he refers to women, 15 times he refers to men. There is a role for both men and women within our ecclesia. There is a role for men and women to recognize our position before Almighty God. <clears throat> I want you to think about the first century for a moment. In the first century, when those men and women, the brothers and sisters, came into the ecclesia, all of them would have had their heads covered. And so the first thing the Apostle Paul asks us to do is for men to remove their head covering because they have a position before Almighty God. And you'll also notice, let's just read it together. Now I praise you, brethren, in all things that you remember me and keep the ordinances as I have delivered them unto you. Don't change them. Don't put your own spin on them. Don't think you can make it up and do it your own way. There is an order. There is a process in the way that we follow these things. Follow the ordinances as I have laid them unto you. But have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of, uh, and the head of Christ is God. Everybody in that hierarchy except God is under subjection. We're all in subjection to God, just as the Lord Jesus Christ was as well. And all of this really comes out in verse 7. The whole purpose of this, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So everybody's playing a role in this. It's about a role, a responsibility, about a way of doing things, about a way that we conduct ourselves within the ecclesia. And as you look around the hall this morning, I'm a bit better off than all of you because I can see all of your lovely faces. And I can look out and I can see that the brothers have their heads uncovered. And I think to myself, that's for me. It's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's about me showing his example, about speaking his words. And I look around and I see the sisters and I think, that's also for me because she represents me in my flesh. It's not about me. It's not about my words. It's not about how I want to do things. It's about the way that God wants us to do things, that we have to be in subjection to the example of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is a way, there is an order, there is a process by which we go about our worship. I need to humble myself. I need to, de to dedicate my life to serving my master. I need to listen to his words, because we've already said, as, we, as we've already said, he has the words of eternal life. The Apostle Paul then comes then once again to speak about the breaking of bread. That thing that we have come to do together this afternoon. And he talks in verse 17 about coming together. And we have come together this afternoon to break bread and to drink wine together. And let's go down to uh, verse 23. For I received of the Lord that which I also deliver unto you. So again, I'm telling you exactly as I received it. This is how you do it. This is the process. This is the order that you go through. And that, was cut, that came out, of course, didn't it, in the burnt offering. For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After like manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do, as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. And what was it in John chapter 1 that John said as he saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we now have, in symbol, that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His body had to be broken, but his life was poured out in obedience. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And so it was instigated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we now too, whether we're baptised or not, we can remember him. We can remember that he was the burnt offering. He is the sin offering. He is the one who gave his all, who paid the price so that we can remember him, recognize our position, our failings, our need to examine him, uh, to, sorry, to examine ourselves, but go from here knowing that we can have a place in his glorious kingdom. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. 
you can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.